been really enjoying our summer series, Questions Jesus Asked. Today's question is somewhat unique. This particular question, Jesus actually asks twice. And each time he asks it, he gets a very different response, and he himself gives a very different response. The two stories are linked by the question. It's Mark chapter 10. The question is, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. This is the third and final time in Mark's gospel that Jesus instructs his followers about the plan once they get to Jerusalem. And you may remember from some of the previous sermons in the series that the gospel's focus is building a case for who Jesus is, that he is God's son and he is the promised Messiah. And you may remember several weeks ago we pointed out that once that becomes clear, his message changes and he begins to talk about what God's purpose is for him. And he tries to get his disciples to understand that as they go into Jerusalem. But what we're gonna find as we read on is that the the disciples are a little slow in, in picking this up. Old ideas are hard to get past, and their ideas of Messiah are quite different. So we pick up the story in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And so Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. It is not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, 
was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And so they called the blind men. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. Mark intends for us to see these stories in tandem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jericho's 15 miles from Jerusalem. His journey's almost over. This healing of Bartimaeus, by the way, is the last miracle of its type in the Gospel of Mark. And then we have these two conversations along the way held together by that singular question. What do you want me to do for you? And first, we come to this unusual request by James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. James and John probably argued a lot. There was probably a lot of thunder rolling in those arguments. Sons of thunder. This story gives James and John a very bad image. But they're part of Jesus' inner circle. They have been walking with him since the very earliest part of his ministry. Jesus first called Andrew and Peter, and then James and John. And they with Peter are his inner circle. They have been with him at the transfiguration. They've been his confidants. And so, in some sense, they had every right to think that they were being prepared for leadership of a sort. Remember that as we work through this conversation. And so they come to him and they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I love that. Say yes before you know what it is. And we think, man, that is just manipulative. They should know better. But here's what I want to say to you. Many, maybe that's too weak of a word, maybe most, and maybe that's too weak of a word, maybe all of us commonly approach and relate to God that way. For most of us, our relationship with God is when we're in need, and our approach to Him is that He would give us what we want. I mean, think about that. James and John are you and me, And that's why we're so often disappointed by God because he doesn't give us what we want him to give us. Lord, if truth be told, I'm working this religion thing, but what I really want out of it is for you to give me what I'm gonna ask you for. We were taught to pray in Jesus' name, and that's not like some magical incantation. Like, if I pray something in Jesus' name, God's gonna say, oh, you got me. You said the magic words. We had a dog, uh, Champ, years ago, who was one of these dogs who would take off when he had a chance. And one time, I'm running down the neighborhood, and he's staying about 1,000 feet in front of me the whole time. And I keep saying, Champ, come! Stop, Champ! And he turned, he looked at me, and he'd keep going. 
after doing this for about 10 minutes, I finally said, sit, and he sat. It was like the magic word. I kept saying, sit, sit. It's like he couldn't move. He was plastered to the asphalt. I walked right up to him and put the collar on him. Some of us think, in Jesus' name, is like God says, oh, you got me. You said the magic words. To pray in Jesus' name means I'm praying under submission to Jesus. I'm praying for his purposes in my life. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray as Jesus taught us, your will be done. When you approach God based on that question, which, if we're honest, all too often, even devoted Christians want that to happen. When you do that, you are not praying in Jesus' name. You're praying in your name. And so let's admit that James and John are just reflecting the tendency of the human heart to focus on self, to operate even in our devotion to God out of self. But Jesus is patient with them. He asks them a question, what is it you want me to do? That wouldn't have been me. If I was Jesus, I'd have taken them to task. What are you thinking? Haven't you been listening all this time? But ever patient, Jesus asks them. He's going to let them reveal more and then identify the issue with them. What is it you want me to do? And they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And let me try to explain where this question comes from. While Jesus, from the moment it is declared you are the Christ, the Son of God, is focused on the cross, as they go to Jerusalem, they are looking for Jesus to set up his kingdom. So when they say in your glory, they're saying in your kingdom. And they think that's impending. They think in the weeks to come, Jesus is gonna sit on the throne of David. And their debate was, who is the greatest among them? Now we think that's just like guys being guys. You know, arm wrestling, who's the strong, who's the greatest among us? No, think about this. They are vying for cabinet positions in the new administration. (laughs) And when it says the other disciples were mad at them, it's because James and John had beaten them to the punch. They had made their play first. So Jesus pulls them all together. And this is what he says. You know that those who have authority among the Gentiles lord it over them. But then he says, not so with you. That's what the NIV says. It's actually in present tense. It is not so with you. It's not, this shouldn't be the same as you. He's saying, that's not how my kingdom works. And if you try to play it that way, you're not going to be a part of it. This is not so with you and my kingdom. Instead, whoever wants to become great, the Greek word megas, mega, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. That's the Greek word diakonos. And whoever wants to be first, that's the Greek word protos, Proto must be slave, Greek word doulos, of all. And then he points to himself, even even I, that's my mission, don't you get it? Even the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This double statement, not so with you, instead whoever wants to be great, 
must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave. He's stating it, and then he's going deeper and harder with the same idea. The word diakonos, until the church began using it for the word deacon, which became this uh, pillar position in historic churches, at this point what diakonos meant are table waiters. And so while James and John and the others are vying to be at the top of the seat, Jesus is saying that's not how it works. If you want to be great, you need to get out of the table, put those who are serving you on the table, and you need to wait after them. You need to become the waiter. And they says, if you want to be first, you need to be doulos, the servant of all. That's actually the Greek word, the most common Greek word for slave, and it implies someone has sole ownership of you and your rights and your abilities and your very life. And he says, that should not just be true of one person. You need to give that sole ownership to everybody. If you want to be first in my kingdom, then everybody owns you. You serve them. Don't you see, that's what I have come to do. That's greatness, and it's why the kingdom of God is often called the upside-down kingdom. In the kingdom of God, the fools are those with wisdom. The servants are the greatest. We die in order to live. You see, in the Gospels, when the church lived out this upside-down kingdom, it was said of them, are these not the ones that are turning the world upside-down? In reality, they were turning it right side up. It just looked upside down to the culture. And that's what we see being played out here. They're having two very different conversations passing each other. Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm gonna drink, be baptized? He's talking about his impending baptism of fire and suffering. And they're saying, we can. I I think Jesus' question was probably rhetorical but yet they answer it because they're picturing something completely different. And then Jesus says to them, well, the reality is you are going to share in that suffering. They continue on to Jerusalem. They come to Jericho. Jericho was a very wealthy town. Herod the Great had built one of his great palaces there. It was a place of great luxury. Bartimaeus is meant to be a contrast between utter poverty and the privilege that was Jericho. And Bartimaeus was certainly not the only beggar on that road to Jerusalem. It's interesting, this is the one time Mark makes sure we know the name of the person who's healed. He not only calls him by name, but he helps to make sure we get the name. He wants us to know Bartimaeus individually. There's there's a purpose for that, which we're going to get to at the end. Bartimaeus hears it's Jesus. Son of David, that's the messianic acknowledgement. Have mercy on me. That's a messianic prayer. And those around Jesus say, would you be quiet? We're on our way to something important here. Jesus doesn't have time for you. He persists. And Jesus, of course, says, bring him to me. And so they do. And Jesus asks him the very same question. 
I think James and John were probably right there listening in. And Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? And when Bartimaeus says, Lord, I want to see. You have to understand, he just doesn't want to have a physical condition healed. We've learned through this series that to be blind was to be seen as a person under God's judgment for either your own sins or the sins of previous generations. He was a beggar because that was the profession that was available to him. He was isolated from the spiritual and the cultural life of his people. When, when he said, Lord, I want to see, he wanted a life change. He was bringing everything to Jesus and asking him to give him a whole new life. And Jesus says to him, your faith has saved you. Go back to previous sermons where we talk a lot about the whole nature of faith and the healings of Jesus. I won't take time with that today. It was really about his faith in Jesus, not the strength uh, of his faith. And then it says this, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. So here we have these two very different stories, two obviously different requests, and and two very different outcomes. James and John do not get what they're looking for, (laughs) and Bartimaeus gets a whole new life. Now, if we're looking at this through the lens we tend to look at the New Testament stories, and that's through our experience, and see it through Bartimaeus or through James and John and our own need, Where we might go is then to say, what do we learn so that we get our miracle? How do we avoid what James and John got and get what Bartimaeus got? But I don't think that's what Mark is getting at here. Here's how I see this, now that we lay the two together and we understand where this story is in the context of the greater story of the life of Jesus. This is a contrast between two men who had been walking with Jesus arguably as long as anybody had. The most mature in their journey and someone who at this very moment is just coming to Jesus. You see, what's important about that statement isn't just that he received his sight, but it's what he did as a result. Bartimaeus could have done anything. He was free now. He could have gone off and met his family and been accepted back into the circles and recovered the life that he never had. He could have done anything with his new life. But what did he do? He gave all of that up and he followed Jesus. And this is why the name. Tradition tells us that Bartimaeus became a devoted follower of Jesus. It's possible that Bartimaeus was among the 120 that were in the upper room who experienced Pentecost. He became a brother. When you add that to the story, it changes everything. It's like, what should a person who's been walking with Jesus for all this time be asking God to do? As opposed to someone who is entering into life with God. You see, when we come to Jesus Christ, whether it's physical blindness or spiritual, God always does the miraculous work of opening our eyes. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draw him. I have never seen somebody come to faith 
trying to figure it out themselves. I have shared Christ with people for years who have never gotten it because they can't get past their own ideas. And then there have been moments where all of a sudden, it's like this spiritual light opens up because the gospel is counterintuitive to human wisdom. It requires that we let go of our need to achieve and to understand and to guarantee what is true. That's counterintuitive to how we think as a race. The Holy Spirit has to take that darkness and open up your eyes. And that has happened for every single one of you that has chosen afterwards to follow Jesus. It's a miraculous work of God. And that's what happens to Barnabas. Now, Let's look at James and John. In some ways, some of us should see ourselves more like them. You've been following Jesus a long time. And of course, the miraculous is a part of our spiritual journey. It is. One of these days, over coffee, Vit and I will tell you how miraculous God's work was throughout the process of our moving to Worcester. It's an incredible story. Our, our, we feel so blessed, our, 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 our connection with God is so powerful because we have seen him divinely at work. So I'm not suggesting that the miraculous is not something that continues in our life, but what I'm saying is, as we grow, what we expect of God and what we come to God for needs to change, needs to grow. What we see in James and John is the human struggle that has to be put to death in order for them to become the apostles, James and John. And when Jesus says to them, you will drink my cup, experience the baptism of trial and fire, that's exactly what happened to them. James is one of the very first martyrs, Acts chapter 12, gives his life for the cause. He never sits at the right hand of Jesus, his greatest ambition, but he gladly dies for the cause. John would be literally fried in a huge vat of oil, miraculously survive and then spend his days horribly scarred from head to foot, isolated on the island of Patmos, where God would use him to bless tens of thousands of believers in Asia and still bless us today through his work in the New Testament. You see, there has to become a point in your journey where it stops being, Lord, I need, I need, I need. And maybe what Jesus was doing when he said to James and John, what is it you want me to do was teaching them the proper path of obedience. You see, when he says, Even the Son of Man has come not to be served but to serve. Maybe he's looking forward to a moment when he will say to his heavenly Father, Lord, here's what I want. If this very cup can be passed from me, would you you let that happen? Nevertheless, not my will but yours. Maybe there was a moment in James and John's life where they look back at this and are not just embarrassed by it and grateful for the mercy of God. But they understood that when Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He was helping them understand where they should be with their heavenly Father at that moment. 
and where they should be with others around them. Because to truly follow Jesus into what is great in his kingdom is to be a servant. It's to do what Jesus did. It's to turn to others and say, what do you need? What do you want me to do for you? And then to let them own your resources and your wisdom and your abilities so that their needs are met. That is what comes with followership of Jesus. It's a slow recognition that all these things that I thought I needed, I don't. All I need is Jesus. Bartimaeus is freed and he could have pursued any life at all. And what he realized was blind or seeing, following Jesus was all he needed. James and John needed to learn that and you and I need to learn that. Two verses in Philippians where Paul has to deal with this in the first century church just like Jesus had to deal with it with the disciples. Say this with me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking out for your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then later on in this very book, Paul holds up his ambition as a model. When in chapter 3 he says this with me. It is my ambition to know Christ. Yes, to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead, but also I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. That's the New Living Translation. And it's a very accurate translation because when he says it is my ambition, he's saying I want this, and then he lists three things. And so each of these we could add, I want this. I want to know Christ. I want to experience the power of his resurrection. But also, I want to suffer with him, sharing with him in his death. There is a point where it stops being about you and your needs. Our Lord cares about what we're concerned about. We cast our cares on him because he cares for us. But eventually, he wants you to understand that he's all you need. And your ability to follow him is not found in your physical health or in your prosperity or in your comfort. It's found in your willingness to take up your cross and follow him. And then he lives through you. And that's when God does through you what he created you to do. It's the upside down kingdom. (laughs) We die to live. Yeah, let's pray. Father, such truth, such conviction. Forgive us for judging James and John without judging ourselves. Forgive us for working hard in serving you and following you for hidden ambitions. And may it be our ambition above all things, as Bartimaeus did, to follow you to follow you even into death so that others might live.